Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast, everybody. My name is Jake. I'm our online pastor. We love getting to be here with you each and every week. We are getting ready to kick off our new sermon series. But before we do, I just have one quick question for you. Who do you think you are? No, seriously, who are you? I'm not talking about a popular song by The Who. I'm talking about your core identity. That's what we're going to be spending the next six weeks talking about in our sermon series, Who Do You Think You Are? Our core identity as followers of Jesus is so important to know and grasp and understand. So let's start that conversation together right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our brand new series called Who Do You Think You Are? Really excited to dive into this series on our identity in Christ as Christians. Friends, I am here at a house that's very near and dear to our family. This house on the north side of Chicago was built by my great-grandfather. Ingvald Hansen was his name, and he was a carpenter, and he built this place back when he was in his late 20s. It's nearly 100 years old. Can you believe it? My great-grandfather built it. My grandmother was their only child, and so my grandma inherited this house, and my mother was raised at this house. And so just being here kind of makes me feel connected to my roots. You know, one of the ways I think we uh, get our self-identity is by connecting with our roots. Where do we come from? Who are we from? Maybe that's why I was so excited to do one of these DNA tests. I'm the only one in my extended family who did it, but I spit in this vial and mailed it in, and I had so much fun discovering the heritage that I'm from. I knew a lot about my mom's side, uh, Ingvald Hansen, Norwegian immigrant. Uh, Knew about the Norwegians, but my dad's side is what I learned from here. Believe it or not, in my dad's side, I was able to trace back my roots, some to Germany, back to the 1700s. In fact, in the 1800s, I have a great-great-grandfather by the name of Peter William Gergen II. Here, we'll circle him. Look at that family. I mean, they look like royalty. You do know in Germany back then, it was a monarchy. There was a king, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was somehow connected. I was very impressed with this group and my family connection. But to be honest, I also discovered that uh, Granny Spradley from the Hicks from Boonville, Kansas. Look at this picture. That's Granny Spradley, my great-grandmother and they look like a bunch of hillbillies, don't they? Shoes optional in that family. And so, you know, I kind of come from, from a mixed clan. Well, one of the things I found out, I thought this was so much fun. My father's uncle's cousin was Henry Fonda. No kidding. Pretty sure that makes Jane Fonda my great cousin once removed. Jane and I were like besties, baby. Huh? I also discovered that through my dad's side, a guy by the name of Bill Zish, he is a uh, great cousin. Uh, Bill Zish was the president of Aerojet. Uh, during his leadership, the company built the rocket engines that put the Apollo astronauts 
on the moon. My family, we're rocket scientists. How about that, huh? I love discovering things about my roots. And the reason is, yeah, I love history, but I also love finding out a little more about me. Even this test, it says, welcome to you. We all want to know, who am I? And when we discover, I think the DNA discovery is all about people better understanding who they are. This is interesting. I I read about a a guy, a pastor actually, a pastor in Maryland. His name is Pastor Jay Spates. And he did the DNA test, wanting to better understand his roots. And he was shocked at what he found out. Here he's a simple pastor living in an apartment, didn't even own a car. He discovers he's royalty. No kidding. He found out that he is from this little country in West Africa called Benin. And in Benin, there's a monarchy and he is a descendant of the king. He was so proud to find that out. Later on, he met somebody from Benin, was telling him how he's royalty. The guy says, I actually know the king of Benin. Would you like to meet him? He arranged a phone call. On the phone call, the king says to Jay, Jay, you are a prince of Benin, and we would be honored to have you as our guest. He got on a plane, he flew to Benin, he was treated like royalty, and they presented him a crown as a prince of Benin. Friends, uh, Pastor Jay discovered that there were aspects of who he was that he had no idea, and he was so blessed to discover. You know, this series about our identity in Christ is going to reveal to us aspects of who we are that we didn't know, unknown elements of our identity. And friends, we are going to find out things about us that are a game changer. You know, sometimes when you discover who you are, it will change your life forever. And so it is in this series. When we become a new Christian, actually it says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when we become a Christian, we are made new people. We're like a new person. And we're going to learn our shocking, surprising, and revolutionary identity in Christ. It's time for Who Do You Think You Are? If you have already put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to have you consider a next faith step. If you have never done so, I would like to encourage you to be baptized. If I'm going to try and boil it down as simply as possible, baptism is an outward faith expression of an inward faith decision. It's the moment in time where you say publicly that you are going to trust Jesus all the days of your life, that the person you used to be, there's no going back. And it's an exciting and celebratory moment in each and every one of our lives. 
So if you've never been baptized and you're curious about what that faith step would look like, get a hold of us and just let us know that you're interested in having a conversation. Go to thecompass.net slash baptism and let us know and we will start a conversation with you about what it would look to be baptized. And don't worry about whether you're located in the western suburbs of Chicago or not. We will work with you to make this special event happen. Now, with that being said, let's get back to our message with our senior pastor, Jeff Griffin. Friends, when we become a Christian, we are reconciled to God, both in this life and we're promised heaven with him forever. But becoming a Christian is more than just getting right with God. It's also changing. Our fundamental identity is altered. And so many Christians, they press on in life and they're unaware of these identity changes. And we're going to dive into them. In fact, this series, we're going to look at six. There are six weeks and six identity changes that we're going to really seek to, to understand and live. And the first is this, that we are saints. Do you feel like a saint? You know, when I think of saints, I think of the old ancient pictures of like Saint Matthew or Saint Mark or Saint John or Saint Luke. And you'll notice in all the photos that they've got Halos. That was one of the ways the ancient artists depicted the saints. These ancient saints were all martyrs. That means that they were killed for their devotion to Jesus Christ. They were willing to risk their lives. They said, you, you, you can't stop me from preaching about Jesus. And so these early Christians were like, man, those martyrs are saints. And so they put that title before their names. So, I ain't no martyr. And so let's uh, take this down. And so for many centuries, the only ones that were saints were the martyrs. But interestingly, then in the 6th and 7th century, the, the pastors were like, we haven't had any new saints in a long time. And the pastors said, you know, we're going to start awarding the title saint to just pious Christians in our church. The church was no longer being horribly persecuted, and so they weren't being martyred. And so martyrdom was no longer a sufficient qualification for sainthood. And so what they did was they canonized. In fact, that's what this is called. Canonization is the process by which the church officially declared a saint. And these pastors found their most pious, most godly church members, and they said, you are a saint. And so the number of saints just took off. In fact, it took off so much that in 1200 AD, a pope by the name of Alexander III, he was so upset at everybody being called a saint. In fact, he had heard that a pastor had declared a guy a saint who had died in a drunken brawl. He was stone drunk in a fight and died. And this guy's a saint. And so Alexander said, that's it. We're done with all these people being called saints. The Pope is the only one who's able to canonize someone as a saint. And four criteria were established. Number one, you had to be dead. Yeah, that's right. The Pope was thinking, yeah, sure, as I call someone a saint, they're going to mess it up in a big way. So let's wait till after they've died and can't mess it up. You have to be dead. You need to be heroically devoted 
to the church, just sacrificing and working and giving so much. And you need a virtuous lifestyle. They look very carefully at the deceased person and they determine, were they holy? Did they live a godly life? And then fourthly, there need to be two verified miracles in their lives. And friends, as a result of these changes, there have not been that many saints. On average, each pope has identified 5 to 20 people per year that get the status of saint. The word saint means holy one. In fact, it's interesting. In the Bible, when we see sanctified, or we see holy, or we see saint turns out that they're all coming from the Greek word hagio. And hagio means set apart from sinful people, distinct for God, remarkably holy. And I suppose as a result, none of us are quick to say, call me a saint, right? It just doesn't feel applicable for us. But friends, that's where we need to wrestle with what the Bible says. Because according to Scripture... All Christians are saints. No kidding. Let me show you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, I should tell you, I'm reading out of the NASB in this verse because the, the NIV, which I normally read from, translates saints, holy people. And so that's great. It says it well, but I'm going to read the NSAB because I want saint uh, to, to be in the term. It says there, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, and to those who have been sanctified, you know, that's made holy in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who's a part of this saint group? All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Essentially, Paul is starting this letter to the Corinthians by saying this letter is to the saints in Corinth. It's interesting. That's how Paul starts many of his letters. In Romans, it starts to the saints in Rome or to the saints in Colossae. That's for Colossians. Or to the saints in Ephesus. That's how the book of Ephesians starts. Or to the saints in Philippi. That's how the book to Philippians starts. In all, 60 times in the New Testament, we see the writer address the saints as a synonym for Christian. In fact, it's interesting. Never is a person, an individual, called a saint. It's always plural. To the saints. It's referring to all of us. We are saints. In God's eyes, he sees us as remarkably holy. Now, Here's the problem. We don't feel holy. We're all painfully aware of our failure, of our sin. And so how do we reconcile this keen awareness of our own moral lapses and this identity as holy ones that God declares us to be? Well, to do so, we're going to spend some time now in the book of Hebrews Chapter 10, uh, there are a number of verses here in Hebrews 10 I want to show you, but let's start with verse 10. It says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. This is a reference to the crucifixion. And it says that we are made holy through the crucifixion. 
Friends, that's the key. The key to becoming a saint is not perfecting your life to where you can claim the title as applicable because of your morality. The truth is saints are sinners who have been forgiven through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the grace of God through Christ that makes us saints. We are positionally holy, even though practically we are still messing up and doing our best to grow, but stumbling as we do. Here would be an an example. I uh, had a painful experience recently. I uh, was awarded a little love letter from a Naperville police officer. Here's, it happened. I was going to my small group. One of the problems with my men's small group is that it's very early in the morning. The reason that's a problem is sometimes I have a hard time getting going. You know, I set my alarm and I'm like, come on, Jeff, get out there, get to the car, get moving. And I'll just like look in the mirror and kind of space out, you know. And I'm late. I'm inevitably late getting into the car. And on this particular day, I was late. And because I was late, I was in a hurry to get to church to meet with my small group. Well, it was driving through downtown Naperville when suddenly, saw the lights behind me. And I'm like, oh, no, looked down at the speedometer, looked at the speed limit. Speed limit was 25, and I was going 17 miles over, and I'm like, I'm dead, I'm dead. I pulled over, and he came up to me, and he's like, sir, you were going 17 miles over the speed limit, and I'm like, yeah, I'm aware of that. He said, what's the hurry, sir? And I said, well, actually, I'm going to a Bible study. You see, I'm a pastor. A lot better than saying, well, I just robbed a bank and I'm speeding away. You know what I mean? And he didn't seem moved by that. He goes, give me your driver's license. And he took it, went back to his car. And as I waited for the bad news, I just sat there. It's a very humiliating experience. You know, it's like rush hour, all these cars are passing me, and I am guilty. And I'm thinking about the consequences. I'll probably get a $120 ticket. It's going to go onto my insurance, jacking up my insurance premium. And I'm just going, ah, just feeling guilty. The police officer walks up and he says, sir, I'm giving you a warning. (laughs) He says, get to your Bible study now. And so I took off. Man, was I feeling good. I I love this warning. You see, a warning is, is something that says, you are guilty, but you're not getting a ticket. It's a grace. And that's exactly where we live. We have documents in heaven declaring that we are sinners. But we also have a document declaring we are the recipients of grace. The grace of Christ has made us Innocent, though guilty. Isn't that crazy? The Bible says that his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is transferred to us. And so when God looks at us in grace, he sees us as entirely innocent, righteous, forgiven. Friends, as I drove away, there was a joy in my heart. I clung to my warning I am out scot-free. You know, we got to enter into that spiritually. That's the truth, is that we are saints, not because we're perfect, but because we've been forgiven. 
And if we can enter into that, hold on to the promise that we, all of that junk, the stuff that we did when we were kids, stuff that we did in college, stuff that we did as a young person or as a parent or as a employee or as a spouse. I mean, all these arenas of our lives, we've got ugly stuff. But the blood of Jesus Christ makes us holy. It's the beauty of the Christian reality. Let's go, let's go back to, to verse 10 for a minute. There's something I want, I want to show you there. Remember what it said? We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus was sacrificed. Yeah, yes, he was on the cross, but he was also on the altar, if you will. As it turns out, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was all about pointing to what Jesus would do. The, the people in the Old Testament, they would take an animal and that goat or that sheep or, or, or that dove, whatever it might be, it represented them. The, their guilt was transferred to the animal and the animal died on their behalf as a substitute. All of this was getting us ready for Jesus. So one of the things I love about the book of Hebrews, particularly chapter 10, is that it's very clearly pointing to the Old Testament sacrificial system that identifies and helps us understand the work of Jesus Christ. It was all about what happened at the temple in Jerusalem. Interestingly, I've been to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and one of the things I found fascinating was the mikvah, the first century, meaning at the time of Jesus, this mikvah was operating. And you say, what's a mikvah? Good question. A mikvah is a ceremonial washing station, a bathtub, a hot tub, if you will. Let me show you a picture here of the mikvah they excavated right next to the Temple Mount. The priests every day would come to this bath. The picture here is from the inside of the mikvah looking out. You can see the uh, wall outside behind. That wall out there is the Temple Mount wall. Well, what you notice is that there's stairs coming down on one side, there's the remnants of a stone barrier between the other side. Why is there a stone barrier between the two sides of the stairs? I'll tell you why. Because the ceremonial washing was so important that if someone bumped somebody else after they were ceremonially washed, they were no longer clean. And so the priest, arriving at the temple to do sacrifices, he would go down the one side into the water, ceremonially celebrating the forgiveness and the washing of sin, and then he would go up the other side. But friends, he had to do this every time he came to the temple. In fact, there were so many washings. Can I tell you a little more? When he went into that mikvah to do the ceremonial washing, that was his second bath. They were required to wash a real bath, not a ceremonial bath, but a real bath at home. In fact, clean all your clothes. Don't put on a dirty robe. It must be cleaned, freshly cleaned. Cut your hair, clean clothes, freshly bathed, and now come to the temple and then go into the ceremonial wash of the mikvah. You're like, man, why am I in the water? I've already been clean. Nope, do some more cleaning and then when you get out and you get up onto the Temple Mount, there was the laver, this big steel bowl where they would wash their hands again. You're like, why would I wash my hands again? Ceremonial cleaning. 
all of this cleaning represents this desperate cry to be cleansed, to be washed, to be forgiven. It's interesting, this need for perpetual cleansing kind of reminds us how we feel when uh, the CDC tells us to wash our hands because of the pandemic, doesn't it? When, when we got that guidance of washing hands. I remember being so shocked. You know, they said, you need to wash your hands five to ten times a day. What? And you need to do it for 30 seconds. Sing happy birthday twice while you wash your hands. I remember thinking, holy cow, this is crazy. I've never washed my hands so long and so many times. The message was the sense that if you've washed your hands for 10 seconds, you may think you're clean, but you're not. If you wash your hands a couple times a day, you may look clean, but germs, viruses remain. You're not. And spiritually, that's kind of how we feel, isn't it? We're like, you know, I, I had a good time of confession with God, and I think I received some of his forgiveness, but we feel guilty shortly after that. We do something else and more guilt remains. And so... The, the problem is we don't feel like a saint. A saint is one is who is perpetually holy. And the priests going through the mikvah and the laver, and they were just kept on washing many times every day. And so there was this sense of holiness or purity or forgiveness is something I have and I lose. I have and I lose. I have and I lose. I feel forgiven. I feel guilty. I feel forgiven. I feel guilty. And that's what we can go through as well. But that perpetual guilt, followed by forgiveness, followed by guilt, it's not the way God wants us to live. He wants us to enjoy a pervasive, sustained sense that we are saints, purified and forgiven by the finished work of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at the next verse here in Hebrews 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. You see the repetitive nature of the the ceremonies around the priest and the frustration that though it's profound and beautiful, sin is not permanently removed. But look at the next verse, verse 12. But when this priest, and when it refers to this priest, that's a reference to Jesus Christ, who in this text is called the high priest. He replaces all the priests of the Old Testament. He's the ultimate priest. It says, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for all sins, he sat down. I love the sitting down because remember it said in the previous verse, day after day the priest stands and performs the rituals. The priest is exhausted. There's this never-ending deal with sin. When Jesus offers the one sacrifice on the cross for all people at all times, he sat down. It's done. It's taken care of. Isn't that beautiful? Look at the next verse, verse 14. By one sacrifice, he, Christ, made us perfect forever. Perfect forever. Can you believe that? That is our standing, our sainthoodness. We're not perfect practically. We're still growing. But spiritually, in God's eyes, we have been perfected by the finished work of Jesus. The Lord sees us 
totally cleansed. Uh, Let me read verse 17. Their sins, this is God speaking, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Divine amnesia. I love this. The Lord says, friends, I have so thoroughly forgiven you if you're a believer. So thoroughly forgiven you that I don't even remember those sins. You know, we remember them. We're like, oh, I can't believe what I did. God says, in my mind, it's gone. Gone. Christ took care of it. It's not part of your story anymore. Isn't that beautiful? Complete removal of sin. Verse 19. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. I I love this. The most holy place is the inner room of the temple. Would you feel qualified to march on into the temple to meet with God? The passage says to have confidence, boldness, just saying, hey, I'm going to meet with the Lord out of my way. How can we do that? We're saints, baby. We have been forgiven by God so thoroughly that we can charge into the presence of God. Not with disrespect, but with confidence knowing we are qualified to be there in God's presence, talking to him, hanging with him, being loved by him because we're saints. Similarly, let me read verse 22. It says, draw near to God with a sincere heart with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That's that ceremonial cleansing that the priests did again and again. This time, it's happened once through Jesus and we are cleansed. We no longer have a guilty conscience. Can I highlight that word, guilty conscience? What a beautiful thing to be cleansed of your guilty conscience. Friends, the Lord wants us to so thoroughly connect with our forgiven status as saints that we just don't live with the guilt that plagued us once. We feel a high-heartedness, a cleanliness, a sense of the burden of shame has been removed and we have a bounce in our step as we turn to God in prayer knowing that as a free gift of grace we've been made saints forgiven holy in God's eyes so march on in to the presence of the supreme king because you're a saint my friend through Christ You know, when I got to small group, a little piece of irony is that a guy in my small group is the head attorney for the city of Naperville. One of the the jobs of the office of the attorney is to prosecute lawbreakers in Naperville. Isn't that ironic? And so I'm coming into some major authority, but I bound it in and I threw it in front of him. Warning, I'm off the hook. He read it and he's like, oh yeah, you are. No penalty, no fee, no hit to your insurance. You're good, Jeff. Isn't that fun? Friends, it's about time we not think about it sometimes, feel it sometimes, but grow to have a perpetual awareness of our status as saints. Now, 
I want to remind you that this is the great promise for all who have turned to Jesus Christ in faith and been made a saint, a true Christian. Have you done that? In this closing prayer, I want to give you a chance to become a saint. Get cleansed. Your sin and filth and shame washed away forever. This closing prayer is a chance for those of us who are Christians to restate our faith in Christ and for those of you who aren't sure to become a true Christian. Shall we pray? Lord, we are amazed at what we become when we become a believer. And every one of us wants to be saints. Would you please receive us in grace, even now as we pray. We know we're guilty. We violated the law. We were speeding, if you will, but in moral ways, in significant ways. We're not denying our sin. In fact, we're bringing it to you and asking you to forgive us of it. Jesus, you died on our behalf. We recognize that you paid the penalty, the death penalty that we should have paid. And you did it in love for us. And so in this moment, we say, Jesus, be our forgiver and be our leader and make us saints as a gift now and forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much once again for taking the time to be here with us today. You know, if you've decided to trust Jesus for your Lord and Savior, maybe even the first time today, or you just recently did at our Easter services, we would love to have you let us know. The simplest way that you can do that is the same way that you let us know that you are here each and every week, and that's through our online connection card. Go to thecompass.net slash connection card and just give us a little bit of information. If you accepted Christ or rededicated your life today, you can let us know just by checking the box that's there. Otherwise, if you have prayer requests, you can fill that information in as well because our team loves the chance to pray for you and your specific requests each and every week. And thank you for partnering with us here at the Compass Church. We are all about helping people find and follow God. And financial support is one of the key and crucial aspects to being able to do that. God has called us to be good stewards with our finances. And in the same way, God has called us as the Compass Church to be good stewards of the people who attend and visit here. If you're interested in partnering with us, go to thecompass.net and slash give. Again, that's thecompass.net slash give. All of those links are going to be in the show notes here as well. We just want to say thank you for continuing to partner with us. Looking forward to joining you the next time that we are together here at the Compass Church.